Welcome back for another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host. As you know, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought within personal finance, economics, and investing. You can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. This week, I just wanted to get a perspective on the solar power industry because it's been a burgeoning and upcoming industry that is really taking the world by storm. We really see that with the insistence on coal power going away and moving towards renewable energies. So I was in station the other day talking with some, some of the people in the office, and I came across Joaquin Altenberg, who is the CEO of Vert Solar Finance here in Houston. I thought it'd be interesting to have him on the show to talk about the financial perspective and the macroeconomic impact that solar power is having and may have in the future, both in the U.S. and internationally. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dallas. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Like I said, I'm just really curious to hear your perspective and especially how the industry has been developing as time has gone on in terms of the financial implications of it and the potential for it to be used as a power source in the economy. What comes to mind is the technology itself has existed for a while. So what have been some of the hindrances in implementing that into actual usage in the economy? But before we get to that, I just want to give you a platform to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Thank you. So my name is Joaquin Altenberg, and I am the CEO and founder of Vert Solar Finance. We are a solar investment and development company in the commercial and industrial solar space. I came into this industry about 12 years ago, moved from New York to start a renewable energy company in Houston, Texas, and spent 10 years in finance and uh, Wall Street, developing finance companies and investing in finance companies and ultimately uh, IPOing a finance company, and then uh, saw what was going on in Europe, as luck would have it, and thought it should uh, hit our shores pretty soon. And with an electrical engineering undergraduate degree, I, I thought I might be poised to understand how these new technologies might affect the uh, energy industry. So I moved to Houston, started a renewable energy company, and have been working in this space since. Cool. So has it felt like you're kind of swimming upstream being in Houston in the heart of the oil industry and being in solar? It's definitely been more of a humorous thing. You know, it's that kind of like, wow, that's really nice what you're doing. That sounds like a fun hobby. Why are you not drilling holes in the ground? <laughs> right, right. I've, I've literally heard that numerous times. More the grandpappy made his money off oil and we'll die making our money off oil. To which I ask a little bit cheeky, what do you think grandpappy would be doing today if he were sitting in my shoes? Yeah, yeah. There's always going to be a reluctance. There's the colloquial term of being a Luddite. I don't know if you've heard about that, but no. in the UK about 100, 150 years ago, there was a group of workers who were very against the progression of machines in industry. So that label has been assigned derogatorily to people who are against technology and progress. So it seems kind of like that people have made a lot of money from the oil industry and it's used and you can clearly see the benefits of oil in the economy in terms of using gas for cars and things like that. 
And if people have made their living for a couple generations from oil, then they say, well, why would I want to change? Meanwhile, things have changed around them and there's new and upcoming industries that could potentially be not only eclipsing them, but then potentially putting people out of business or work and therefore there's resistance to it. Naturally, naturally. And that's exactly what's happening. Yes. That's why I just wanted to ask, what do you see as the big benefits of solar power and what does solar power have to offer to the world economy? So solar unlike traditional fossil fuel fired electricity can be produced at the source. That's a really unique opportunity because historically and, and to this very day, most power plants people don't realize are somewhere 50 to 100 miles off in some more sort of rural or not seen area. And as you get into more dense areas, you start to see them and, and they're not only an eyesore, they're, they're a large pollutant. But nonetheless, this infrastructure, the way power is made and shipped in to cities and, and load centers is an old model. And what solar allows you to do is put an electricity producing hardware right there at the load. And it's called distributed energy resources or DERs. And that is the thrust of the market, and that's what utilities um, are recognizing and, and a bit scared of, but it is moving the energy to the load. So almost from a theoretical perspective, if you're consuming energy in a location, it would make sense to also produce it in that same location because there's waste and usage in the process of transporting the power? Yes, that's an excellent distinction. Absolutely. You're going to lose at a minimum 40 to as much as 60% of the electricity you produced just in that transportation of the electricity to the load and then in the resulting distribution from large transmission systems down to low voltage transmission lines and then out to the ultimate user and host. So there is a tremendous amount of loss. Okay. I find this uh, pretty ironic and interesting. I grew up in Saudi Arabia in a Saudi Aramco compound, Saudi Aramco being the Saudi National Oil Company. They're one of the biggest oil producers in the world. And before the last time that I was there, they were installing this big solar panel installation on top of one of the parking garage roofs that was very big. But I don't know if their vision is to be sourcing their own power consumption from solar and then exporting all their oil or what. But obviously there is the sun resource there that's quite abundant in Saudi Arabia. So... It's funny. Just Go to ahead. answer that, that, that's exactly right. They have made a proclamation they're going to do 35 gigawatts, which is 35,000 megawatts of power production, I believe by either 2050 or 2035, and try to basically transition their entire power and load usage domestically from fossil fuels to solar because they have as abundant resources as anybody yeah, yeah. in their location and export everything. From my perspective, I don't see it as a certain power source having to be like there's only one that society uses and all the others have to go away. To me, it makes sense to have an energy mix and that there's different power sources that do certain things better or work better in a certain area because there's an abundance or a lack of abundance in a certain area. So if you have a really sunny area like Arizona, Maybe solar power is very uh, efficient to use there. 
or if you have somewhere where there's a waterfall where you can create hydroelectric power very easily, then maybe that's useful there. Or there is an abundance of natural gas in an area, and so we'll use more natural gas there. And to me, it makes sense to have an energy mix and not just to say like one is bad and another is good and only use one kind of thing. That's my perspective anyway. I couldn't agree more. It's just a fact. You currently operate off a whole mix, and it's called a mix of energy resources, and every area has that mix and that evaluation of the cost of energy produced by those various systems and the reliability, and thus that gets determined how much electricity gets taken from those resources, more or less. That's how it works. And I always say to people, think about the neat thing about renewable energy is you get to think about the resource that you're using. If it's wind, if it's biomass, if it's solar, you're looking at these natural resources and the elements of the environment and weather to really evaluate its, its most effective method of use. And what a lot of people don't realize is the weather is a huge part of energy production. So it's not a huge departure from what we already do. I'm going to throw you a hardball question here. Okay. So a lot of proponents of solar power will argue for it from the renewable side of saying this is a clean energy source and oil or fossil fuels are dirty and not sustainable. So we should be using things like solar power. Can you support or confirm that solar power is as quote-unquote clean as proponents will argue that it is? I can't tell you the statistics of how many kilowatt hours go into making a wafer which goes into making a solar module or panel, and thus what the implication of those resources coming in ultimately culminate into uh, its sort of resources in, resources out. So if the raw materials you're using to make those are also coming from brown sources, then that has an impact. But what I can tell you on a going forward basis, taking that equipment and installing it and running it for its useful life, most panels, certainly all panels that we use are warranted for 25 years. And there's a tiering system called tier one, tier two, and so forth. Using tier one panels, they're typically 25 year warranties which means they're expected to operate with minimal operations and maintenance for 25 years. And that is absolutely unattainable with any fossil fuel-based technology. There's no moving parts in solar. We don't have combustion. We don't have generators. Nothing but a physics effect where photons are converted to release electrons through silicon. So it all happens without anybody being able to see it at the atomic level. But nonetheless, that means no mechanical parts. So you can keep generating and being efficient over that lifetime. At the end of 25 years, what most people don't realize is the systems, the modules, those panels do not degrade much beyond that. So at the end of 25 years, they're warranted to produce a little bit more than 80% of their initial amount, but they're not going to keep declining. It kind of uh, levels off. And so these things, nobody knows, but they could operate for 100 years because there's, again, no stress to the system. It's wafers, silicon wafers glued to a, a backing. So at the end of the day, over the life of these systems, there's just no comparison. We're not using any 
fossil fuel and any other system is going to require continuous and abundant raw materials input be it natural gas or other fossil fuels to run so without question it's stark contrast so when you say that that actually brings to mind a financial analogy that it almost sounds like an equivalent of a trust fund where you're getting paid out a dividend or a distribution over time maybe the fund is depleting somewhat but you're still getting paid these constant dividends over time where it's producing this energy or these, these cash flows that is declining a little bit, but over time it just keeps paying you out and keeps paying you out. Okay, it's got a 25-year warranty on the panels, but maybe they keep going and who knows how long they go. It just kind of reminds me of that dividend that just keeps giving kind of thing. It is very much like that, and it, it can be projected, fairly accurately projected, for its production and uh, revenue potential, which makes it very financeable. On that note, give me a state of where the solar power industry is in the U.S. right now, like where it's been, how it got to where it is now. We'll leave off the future just yet. Sure. So I can speak to what I've seen. What I've seen is over the last 10 years, the solar industry has really settled into three sectors. There's residential, which is solar on roofs, on homes. There's CNI, commercial and industrial, which is solar on buildings. And usually we talk in megawatts in our business or kilowatts. So 500 kilowatts is half a megawatt. So about 500 kilowatts to maybe 20 megawatts is sort of this middle range. That's rooftops on large shopping centers, hospitals, schools, Anything that you kind of look out a building, like we're here on the 24th floor, we could look out and see probably a half a dozen places we could put a lot of solar on just right outside the window. So that's commercial and industrial. And then utility scale is what looks and acts more like historical power plants, which is large, and those probably get the most amount of press large farms, rows and rows that cover miles of solar, which are large solar farms. And so far in the United States, we're the only leading country, a first world country, that doesn't have any kind of legislation at the federal level to address carbon and renewable energy. What has happened is there is a tax credit and then there is, at the state level, various incentives. So the states have been encouraged over the years to take on whatever approach to incentivize solar or renewable energies in general. And those are called Renewable Portfolio Standards, or RPSs. And every one is different. So there's no transfer. There's no common system across the country. So it's, it's left a very fragmented market overall. But what we have seen, and I think most people recognize some brands around the solar residential space, Solar City, maybe Sunrun, folks that you may see in a truck, Vivent or so forth. So those residential companies have been growing pretty rapidly and have seen really dramatic growth. And uh, the utility scale market has seen pretty dramatic growth. But the CNI market is still lagging, and that's one of the reasons we're focusing on it. So where we are today is about 10% in some locations. And again, because of those regional incentives, the number of megawatts installed 
in various places varies dramatically. So California is far and away the leader in solar. Texas is coming rapidly behind with large utility scale projects. And then it's pretty much East Coast and West Coast. You've got from Massachusetts down all the way to Georgia with almost every state having some level of incentive. And then on the West Coast, Washington down to California. And then there's a smattering throughout the Midwest. It's early days. We're just at the inception of this industry and we've already seen residential start to plateau in certain markets. And that's more of the effect that you see against power prices and that notion of crossing the chasm, if you will. There's those early adopters, and then how do you actually get to the early majority? And, and so there's right now some friction in the market for residential for how do we now become a, a mainstream product? And that's what Tesla and others are, are facing. On the commercial and industrial side, we have less than 1% penetration across the U.S. And, and even in major markets like California, it's probably at 1%, if, if at all. Well, with respect to what you were just saying there about the residential penetration, to me, one thing that is of concern from an economic perspective, I don't know if concern is the right way to say it, but I believe in the power of the free market and the free market's voting power of nominating and declaring something useful in society. And over the last few decades, there's been a lot of subsidies associated with solar power in order to encourage its usage. So, for example, my parents were considering whether or not to install some residential solar power on their home. So a large part of the consideration on whether or not to do that was based on the tax credit that they would get for that. How would you say the progression has been in terms of the reduction on reliance of solar power on subsidies in moving towards not requiring subsidies from the government, but actually being financially more attractive than other power sources such as fossil fuels in certain markets and potentially going forward? Sure. So one of the conversations that you're touching on is a, is a term called grid parity, meaning is the price to produce this energy resource equal to the price that it currently exists in the wholesale market on the grid. Since you and I as retail consumers don't get to pay wholesale prices, we pay retail prices, it's important to understand that that's not a perfect one-to-one -one match. Being at grid parity isn't necessarily where we need to be for solar at the resource. If you're going to do a utility scale, absolutely. But at the residential scale, you just need to be able to put it at the retail rate or lower to make it cost effective. So that's one of the conversations that happens. But nonetheless, taking that grid parity notion into consideration, there are 31 states that are at grid parity using solar. So we already know we can produce solar electricity in 31 states at or below where the current fossil fuel-based production is. That does include a tax incentive, but that doesn't take into account any of the other incentives at the local level that we as residential consumers may receive. There are utilities like Austin Energy, sitting in Texas, CPS Energy in San Antonio, that are offering additional rebates to their customers 
to take on solar. And when you factor those incentives in, it really does lower the cost of your electricity bill significantly over the life of that system. So I would say, again, it comes back to geography and local prices and the efficiency of the system that you're installing to know whether or not it makes sense. And I don't have a very good grasp on how this works from an engineering perspective, but my understanding is that the technology side, the production of power through solar technology has been improving at almost an exponential rate to where the cost per watt from solar production has been dramatically declining over time to make it more and more cost effective. That's accurate. That's exactly right. For example, when we bought our first panels in 2008, about eight years ago, we bought our first panels at $8 a watt. Okay. Today, we are paying about 50 cents a watt. That's so a that, huge improvement. <laughs> that's about a 95% reduction in cost per watt. But that's not all. The average panel back then meaning if you took the exact same size and the sizes haven't changed, there's 60 and 72 cell panels. The average size of a 60 cell panel was about 150 watts. The average size today for a 60 cell panel is probably about 300 watts. So now we're able to get twice the energy production in the exact same space. And still that's not all. The average efficiency of a panel at that time was at the sort of 10% range. And the average efficiency today is nearing 20%. So what that means is by efficiency, we're able to convert sunlight to electricity at twice the number of production. We're able to generate twice the number of power in the same area of space. And we're at about 5% of the cost. So it's really a quite a dramatic improvement. It is making solar competitive. And one of the reasons I chose to come into this industry versus staying more broadly in energy and renewable energy is that I believe that solar being on the polysilicate curve, meaning kind of coming in behind the semiconductor industry, that we will get a lot of the technological advancements that we've seen in semiconductors. As an example, when I was an electrical engineer 20 years ago, graduating from undergrad at the University of Texas at Austin, our alma mater. <laughs> um, go Longhorns. <laughs> go Longhorns. We were excited to be able to use an eight kilobyte chip to try to program. And now in half that size, about the thumbnail, you can fit a terabyte. That's just phenomenal advancements. We all know not Moore's Law, but... Yeah, yeah. Uh, Metcalf's Law? Or are you talking about Moore's Law about doubling in, right. in, in capacity? Every two years or whatever, we're on some of that yeah, curve. Yeah. We're getting in the solar space that benefit now that the capital and the global demand for solar is focusing on it. Now you're getting those engineers that were working on semiconductors to now work on solar. And so we're still early days. Well, since you're saying that, I want to kind of jump out of order here and ask you about the future. The efficiencies that you're talking about, which have been going on for the last couple of decades and getting better and better and better, 
Do you expect these efficiencies, that trajectory to continue, or will we hit a plateau and max out, or how do you see that working? So I'm not as close to the technology advancements that are happening because at the end of the day, I'm investing in proven, tried and true technologies. But I do believe that there's so much going on when you, when you start moving into a multi-billion dollar industry that globally, the U.S. is way behind the rest of the world. I mean, China is currently installing half the global solar. It's about 35 gigawatts expected this next year of solar. Yeah, I was just hearing about that recently. Rapid growth, massive manufacturing. Obviously, that creates other issues. But the point being is that the amount of capital and investment and brain power being put into this new and novel industry is really generating things that we can't imagine. Just like not even 30 years ago, we couldn't imagine fiber optics, you know, glass right. conducting light to then transmit communication. And now it, it's silly to do it any other way. So we're going to see all kinds of advancements, efficiencies in battery storage. Batteries just coming online and it's already hitting a, a similar cost to production curve that we saw in solar. We're seeing different types of technology around the way you use substances. Right now, silicon has been the predominant resource to make solar panels, but there's all kinds of new things being introduced, new forms, new shapes, new microscopic crystalline structures. It's just fascinating the amount of advancement and novelty of things that are coming forward. And I am 100% confident that in 20 years from now, when you and I are towards the end of our careers, we'll be sitting there going, oh my goodness, had you ever seen something like this? Well, I mean, just to think back 30 years ago, could you really have seen all the things that we have in technology today? Thinking of a computer in your pocket, it's pretty crazy to think about. I know. I, I pinch myself having <laughs> graduated a computer science engineer and becoming a finance guy and uh, regretting not going to uh, San Francisco and, uh, yeah, and yeah. keep growing. Uh, you know, back then, we just started the dot-com era. Yeah. So uh, it's an amazing uh, opportunity. And, and there's some really amazing people, brilliant minds working on this. And we're just trying to do our part. It definitely seems like an industry that's moving at a million miles per minute kind of thing. It is. To give you a little bit of the vision that I have for us as a large energy installer of distributed energy resources is we believe, and I believe, that you're going to carry your power ultimately. The right to generate power, the right to opt in, to contribute, to actually have some say in the way your electricity gets made is going to exist in maybe as little as 10 years. And in those 10 years, you will be, especially for these larger generators like our customers, you're not going to be, let me explain where you are today first. So today you sit back and you wait for your meter to turn and your electricity to, to arrive. And what they offer you, and there is a benefit to that, the utility says in exchange for you taking what we give you and not having much negotiating power, we give you certainty. We give you 100% guaranteed electricity. 
And that promise is in certain areas becoming less true. There's more blackouts and there's more demand and more stress on this, this old infrastructure. And in 10 years from now, what we believe is going to happen is that that same consumer is going to be opting in to put power to the system, to sell power to his neighbor, to his next door neighbor, to anybody on the street, anybody in the vicinity. And they're going to be able to do that through these uh, sophisticated metering systems and through what are called microgrids and, and small interconnectivity between elements. And, and the technology is going to be such that we can share power. And then we become sellers and buyers at various times. And the utilities are really going to be responsible, as many of them know they are today, for maintaining the lines to make sure that right, the power right, right. comes in. But the actual interchange, just like we're getting free use of each other's information via this podcast, it will not be hard for you to come online and become a contributor, both buyer and seller and retailer of electricity. So that's where we believe in solar and distributed energy resources is to give the client the freedom to dictate how they use and get charged for electricity. Yeah, I definitely see the vision of the potential of that. And almost on an economic theory basis, there will be times where someone has an oversupply of something and someone else has an undersupply of something. So the ability of a network to distribute that where there's need and where there's not need seems like you're maximizing efficiency throughout the power grid. Exactly. That's exactly right. All right. So tell us more about Vert Solar Finance, like what you're doing there, the projects that are going on and what you expect going forward. Sure. Thank you. So Vert Solar Finance is a solar investment and development company focused on commercial and industrial. So what we have seen today is if you look out the window of an airplane as you're coming to land in most major city in the United States, you will look down and see lots of open roof space and you don't see any solar on it, even in California. Why is that? There's a lot of reasons for why that market has stalled. Every roof is different. They're not cheap. They're not low-cost systems. They're multi-million dollar systems. So they're a little bit more expensive than most engineering installation companies can take on. And they're also not enough money, if you will, for a bank to be really interested in loaning, much like a commercial property. You can raise money for commercial property at 50 million easier than you can at five. And that's especially true in an industry like this, where historically the only people who have lent, the only organizations that have lent money to energy projects have been large banks to the tune of half a billion plus. So the market for financing projects has been slow and is evolving, but not there, particularly for commercial and industrial. And the technology, meaning not necessarily what it takes to put the system in, the racking and so forth, all of that exists and is, is very advanced. But it's actually technology to effectuate the workflow, to make that, that installation happen, doesn't really exist today. And so that's where Vert Solar is, is coming in? That's exactly right. We have built a software platform to, first of all, identify and drive the development of that project to completion. So how do you analyze it? 
How do you then take a site that you've now said, okay, this has the potential, it has the local electricity prices that are high, the incentives are such that, you know, overall, if it costs us $1.60 a watt or $2 a watt to build this, we can still save the customer money. And then the other thing that we've done is create a financing platform so that way we pay for it 100%. Somebody who doesn't own their building, you know, a grocery store, most tenants that you see in a shopping center don't own that building. Right, right. And so their ability, frankly, their use of their own capital wouldn't make sense for them to put into a way to cut electricity costs right. and effectively prepay their electricity for 20 years. Yeah. And again, that's where we come in. And so we will pay for 100% of the cost and we will own and operate that system and pass on that reduced electricity, clean electricity to the customer for their benefit. And then we will manage the entire process. So the remainder of the technology deals with how do you optimize speed and standardize the workflow to get a project to construction and then construct it and operate it. So that's our focus and that's what we think makes us unique. And you mentioned before about the different sub-industries between like industrial and residential. Is VERT focusing on one or another? Exclusively on commercial and industrial, which means uh, shopping centers, schools, municipal buildings, industrial complexes, manufacturing plants, warehouses, any kind of big box space, ideally, in an urban setting. Okay, and what's on tap for the future? So we have a, a very concerted effort in California right now, and uh, we have a team and an office opening up in California right now, and uh, we're pushing into uh, the Northeast as well. So Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, we'd like to be in Washington, D.C., our country's capital, and there's some great incentives there, Maryland, and uh, we're looking at Pennsylvania. It's a bit of a tough market, but we're keeping an eye on it. And certainly the rest of the eastern seaboard looks great, too, and up and coming. You know, Florida has some complex laws, but great place for solar, obviously. We did 25 megawatts of projects last year in Georgia. 14 projects uh, got completed. And uh, moving up the eastern seaboard, we believe that whole area is going to continue to grow. All right. And where can people go if they want to get more information on VERT? Please come to our website. We're at www.vertsolar.com. And uh, feel free to email us at info at vertsolar.com and uh, ask any questions. And we're here to answer those. All right. Great. I thought it was actually pretty uh, interesting, some of the insights on the solar power industry, and especially the technology side is, is still somewhat mysterious to me. But hearing more about it, I find is helpful in understanding what the potential is for the future, because it really does seem like an industry that has a lot of potential impact on our future economy. So uh, thank you very much for coming on the show and, and sharing the insight. Thank you, Dallas. Thank you for having me. All right. Catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan podcast. 